Welcome to the Abner Abner Podcast, episode 86, and a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Jim. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about Git commit hooks. We talk about Windows as a development environment. We talk about cloud network firewalls. And we also talk about Azure DevOps. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hi, we're back for another episode. So... What's everyone up to then, Jerry? What about you? Well, I think I mentioned uh, on a previous episode, I, I started a new job recently, a uh, new permanent um, job as opposed to a contract. Uh, and yeah, I've just been getting into that a bit. Um, a few sort of things uh, that are a bit different from sort of previous jobs. One of those is that uh, I'm actually using a Windows laptop. I had the option of using a uh, a Mac or, or a Windows laptop, no, no Linux, unfortunately. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's been strange. It's, it's pretty much the first time I've used Windows 10 as a, as a kind of daily driver ever. Uh, and it's the first time I've used a Windows PC, uh, as a daily driver for a good, um, how long, about four years, maybe. Yeah. So I just had a few thoughts on that really. So, the first thing is that I thought when I first started using it, I thought Windows 10 felt a bit like GNOME. I don't know if anyone anyone else got that or if, if anyone else uses Windows 10. Yeah, so it felt a bit like GNOME, a bit like sort of um, Ubuntu. It felt quite foreign, where, uh, which is which is weird because I've obviously been using Windows for decades beforehand, uh, or very, various different versions. I, I would say it's not perfect, but it's definitely better than it used to be. One of the one of the good things about it now, of course, is that you have uh, the Windows subsystem for Linux WSL, which basically puts a Linux a Linux machine on your your Windows machine, so you can do all the the things that you like to do with Linux with um, minimum minimal kind of setup or or faffing around. So that's that's Windows subsystem for Linux. You're using. WSL one or WSL two? It's WSL one because the reason for that is there's they they're using Cisco AnyConnect for VPN, and there's a, there's an issue with WSL two, and using using it that with that VPN software, but it, it basically won't use it won't use it or it, it I th- actually think it's to do with DNS, uh, something to do with DNS. So yeah, I'm stuck on uh, WSL one. I mean, I'm not sure what the I'm not exactly sure what the differences are, but from what I can gather, WSL two is basically a, a VM, um, whereas WSL one is a bit is a is is kind of halfway house between a a, a, a sort of full blown VM and sort of. So WSL two, like you said, is a VM. Effectively, what happens is um, it uses Hyper V as the the hypervisor. So the difference between Hyper-V and, for example, something like VirtualBox is that VirtualBox runs as a process under Windows, whereas Hyper-V actually provides a hypervisor for the whole the whole platform. So effectively, you boot the hypervisor, Hyper-V, and then Hyper-V boots Windows. And with WSL2, it also boots a second sm- small Linux kernel as well. So that's the so that's WSL2. WSL1 is a bit like a reverse version of Wine. So for those that don't know, Wine is a compatibility layer for Windows applications for Linux. WSL is uh, effectively a compatibility layer for Linux kernel calls. Uh, not all the Linux kernel calls are available in WSL1. Uh, WSL2, because it's actually running a full Linux VM, um, you can do all the things like, you know, native Docker. You've got all the native Fuse file systems and stuff like that. You can't do those things with WSL1. So with WSL1, there's some shims that you have to put in. You know, you, you, if you want to run uh, like a Windows executable, that's actually, you can do that from WSL1. I'm not sure whether you can do that with WSL2. Yeah. Uh, but so there is a, there is a sort of quite a clear difference between the two. The file IO tends to be a lot slower. Um, with WSL1 as well, because it is a shim, you know, it's, it's having to translate kernel calls between the Linux kernel call and the equivalent Win32 kernel call. Yeah. 
I've found similar things when it comes to things like uh, running trace routes and um, similar things in um, WSL where um, WSL one, sorry, where it just basically it can't do it because it doesn't have the permission because the kernel calls um, translations aren't there. So yeah, it's either you know run a dedicated VM at the side or just you know use a native Windows tool to do it. But you know there's a few things like MTR is a good example. I prefer that to standard trace route, but it doesn't work within WSL because it doesn't have the access um, to the underlying network in stack to be able to um, run. So yeah, it's WSL two. I think will sort that because yeah. As you say, it is literally a virtual machine at that point rather than a um, compatibility layer. Yeah, I mean, I had to do things like, um, so I've I've decided to go with the Linux version of Terraform rather than the Windows version. Um, I was quite surprised when I typed in Terraform and it it launched the Windows version. I I I sort of didn't realise that 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 was how it worked. That caused me quite a few issues uh, a couple of months back because I was doing Terraform with AWS and could I make it authenticate? Could I monkeys? And then it's because re- I realized I'd installed the AWS CLI for Linux, but was running the Terraform, the Windows Terraform. Uh. <laughs> so it was looking in the Windows paths for the Terraform. Anyway, the other thing that I found, we use uh, OneDrive at work for... Yeah, various bits and pieces that OneDrive does. And one of the things that I've done with that is I've actually done a symbolic link between the Ubuntu WSL environment and the my documents path in Windows so that all of my projects, all of my code stuff, uh, I put into my documents because that's backed up. And so as a result, I just CD space documents slash whatever the path is that I'm working to. And that ends up in my Windows file system tree one of the things that i found when i was doing that though was file permissions gets janky really quickly and then i found there's some settings you can stick into slash etc uh slash wsl.ini i think it is from memory yeah there was some yeah wsl.conf maybe um yeah i i came across that as well everything was 777 Mm. so i ended up what i ended up doing was copying my stuff to the Linux file system to so just so that I could give give it permission, uh, you know, so the permissions work properly. But as it turns out, you can t- it's a setting that you can turn on to to have Linux permissions in Linux on your Windows file system. I have just found that now. So what you do in you create a file slash etc slash wsl dot conf c o n f. Uh, you put open square brackets, auto mount, close square brackets, new line, options space equals space quotes metadata close quotes. Uh, save that, exit WSL, go back into it. Sorry, exit your WSL environment, go back into it, and then any of your Windows file system paths uh, suddenly get Linux file permissions, which is nice. Just on the Windows as a as as a end user OS, um, it's now got virtual desktops, which I, I use all the time on on Linux and Mac, and it's there on Windows now, and it's kind of well integrated. I think there used to be sort of third party solutions in, in the past, but that works pretty well too. It's not it's not kind of as flexible as you might expect if you're coming from Linux. You can't do things like send Windows to another desktop or show windows from all desktops and things like things like that that i i use all the time in linux but it's good that it's there (laughs) so that was my thoughts on that yeah i never really used that before really in windows i'm gonna try that next week have a go at that sounds interesting yeah, I've I've used that a little bit because yeah, my, my workflow on Linux and Macs has always been multiple desktops, certain applications on some of them. So you know, trying to run in Windows without them was always I found a bit painful. So yeah, yeah. The fact that it exists now, yeah, is, is definitely much better. Yeah, you can't once you've started using them, you can't really go back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, the last thing, um, I just switched to this fairly recently because I was I was starting I was opening a new WSL window for whenever I wanted a new terminal. It turns out um, there's a Microsoft have done their own terminal now, so I use that now. And it's got, it's even got a, a kind of a transparency implementation, which I which I like using because I just I don't really like looking at a, a black background the whole time. I I like to see the picture, <laughs> the, the desktop picture behind. So uh, it doesn't work that well, but at least at least it's there. 
I'm I'm really impressed with WSL. I mean, I'm using it for basically doing Ansible stuff, and I'm basically just in code all day, and that's really good. And because if where we where we, I don't even open the WSL. I just bring up code, and then you can say open up the file system, and it opens it up, and then you can you can have then from there you can open terminals. Is that uh, Visual Studio code? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's another thing. I've started using that as well, Visual Studio Code, on my work PC. I've I've actually installed it on my Linux uh, laptop as well now. Yeah, that's my main tech editor. I use it all the world. And if you if you've got WSL open anywhere, you can type in code anywhere, and it will open up Visual Studio Code in that directory for you. Oh right, nice. Yeah. And if you ever want to get to the file system as well. In Windows to Linux, you can basically just go. You can do a start, run, and go backslash backslash WSL and backslash return, and it will bring up all your mounted file systems in Linux. Oh right, nice. I've got it set down so on the side of when you bring up Explorer, it also has all my Linux partition as well. Well, Linux file locations there in kind of like bookmarks and favorites. It means that you know, anytime I want to go to it, it's automatically there as well. So yeah. It, the integration does seem to be coming along um, quite swiftly with um, WSL. Yeah, I installed the Vim extension though for uh, for Visual Studio Code because uh, I, I just the muscle memory won't won't go away easily. Heretic. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I th- don't don't you need the uh, the the old uh, butterflies extension for VS Code? What's that? No, that's obvious. Oh, there's a, there's a there's an XKCD which is. Uh, group of uh, old greybeards kind of saying, oh, you know, if you're not using Vim, you're not using the true editor. <laughs> Next one says, oh, no, Emacs, Emacs does everything. No, 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 no. To be a true hacker, what you need to use is to release a, release the right combination of butterflies to uh, alter the magnetic polarity of the earth. And <laughs> that will then update the, uh, the, 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 the platter on your hard drive. And the other one goes, oh, yeah, Emacs has, a, has an extension <laughs> Meta see butterflies. Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> There's an XKCD for everything. <laughs> yes, I should. I should. Uh, I'm still on the command line for Git though. That's I can't. I can't uh, sort of. Uh, I can't get used to using Git in the editor. I still drop to the command line for that. I've had uh, a few issues with VS Code and. Windows subsystem for Linux. Notably that if you are editing stuff in VS Code and you're using LF line endings, obviously Windows expects CRLF, so carriage return line feed versus line feed line endings. So that's the the two different file types. Um, So Windows tends to use carriage return line feed for all of its line endings and Linux tends to use just line feed for its line endings. For whatever reason, the Git settings that I've got for Linux and the Git settings that are in VS Code conflict. So whenever I look at what my Git status is in VS Code, it usually says all of my files are out of sync. And that's because they're all reporting line feed, uh, line endings issues or it's reporting that the executable bit is set or isn't set, which is different from what the Linux world says. And try as I might, I can't get VS Code and WSL to agree on that. So I've actually completely stopped using VS Code for my Git stuff altogether. I like the fact it's there, so I can see commit histories and stuff like that in the files, but yeah, uh, I never do commits. I never do pushes or pulls or syncs or any of that lot or branches with VS Code. It's always done from the command line. Yeah, I haven't had that problem, but and I'm not sure if I'm writing uh, Windows line line endings on my, not one or more on all my files. I haven't thought to look. So in the bottom left corner of VS Code, where you've got like the bell icon and stuff like that, one of the things along there will say LF or CRLF. Yeah, I'm looking at my. Uh, uh, bottom right, actually, just a quick correction. Oh, yeah, yeah sorry. The, I'm looking at my, I'm on my Linux laptop at the moment and uh, I can see LF in the, the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, but that's because I'm on Linux, obviously. Um, so, yeah, that's, so it's been a bit of an adventure 
uh, going back to Windows, um, it's all right. Uh, I'm aware of of this kind of software freedom issues involved, but um, you know, for actually doing my job, it it works pretty well. I, I find cool. You guys, it sounds like you guys are are using it as well. Um, you know, so I'm I'm uh, late to the party. <laughs> Yeah, I when I came to my current job, um, previously I was using um, Linux at the place before, and yeah, th- it was my first real dealings with Windows 10 as well. And you know, being used to Windows 7, Windows Vista, XP, all that that kind of thing, there wasn't much change. Then Windows 10, all of a sudden, I couldn't find anything because half of the settings are in the settings window. Sometimes they're in control panel, and mm. yeah, it, it's taken me a while to navigate it a bit. But yeah, I, I'm slowly getting used to it still. I did. I had to use. Uh- um, Windows 7 at a previous place uh, about 2016 that was and it was horrible um, you know I had to install Vagrant um, to use uh, to use Linux on there and it never looked right it was, it was weird the the, um, the Windows the fonts and everything never looked right and and working in a VM um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't wasn't good and, and Windows itself wasn't as as kind of usable, uh, I found in Windows Seven, but yeah. So, so when I mean, in that respect, Windows Ten has seems a lot better. I mean, I use Windows all day, every day. Come from a Microsoft house, but I just find I just get on fine with Windows Ten. It does seem to do the job. I mean, I'm not really using any much, I'm using OpenVPN for our VPN connection. Then most of my stuff does in Chrome because we're a Google house. Everything just done through Chrome kind of thing, and so that and PowerShell. That's all I'm really doing, really. So. I've been quite doing a lot with Azure DevOps, actually, since I've spoken to you last time. Uh, I think we were talking about modules, weren't we, and, and with, with Terraform. So I've got my whole pipeline up and working. I was a bit wary about doing it, but one of my guys in my team knew Azure DevOps quite well. So we've been um, playing with that quite a lot. We run quite a lot of PaaS stuff, but we've, but we've still got quite a couple of applications which, which are basically running a server running running a service x cools service services the windows service so we need to build windows vms um so we can't really go the whole pet versus cattle and we have kind of like vm nodes uh, like one two three four whatever so we've done some quite clever stuff because within Azure DevOps is kind of like i think it, it used to be team foundation services which used to be like the like how you build all your .NET applications. Yeah. But what you can do with this, basically like the new hosted version, is you can run really anything, really. So we're running loads of PowerShell commands and Terraform. So we run PowerShell commands, which basically query Azure to find out what the last VM is and number is. And from then we calculate what the next VM is number is and then we can from there we can then generate our terraform code to um build our our vms so yeah i've learned quite a bit more about terraforming and how you use the module so we can um do things because like we have different environments and we can create the vm but on top of that we might want to add in backup backups and then um the logging analytics rms and um, but sometimes if you just want to practice just deploying a vm you don't want to enable backup uh or the rms logging you can on the one of the variables when you start to run the pipeline you can basically select there what if you want those those bits to work which is kind of really handy and then what i've also done this is that i think i think i don't know if we mentioned last episode we were talking about that um obviously i'm running awx inside to um run all our jobs so once the vm's been curated and we then want to run an ansible script against it to configure it and i was talking about that obviously that i'm running um this in the cloud obviously my adx isn't isn't accessible from the internet but what you can do is you can run azure devops you can run agents on different machines so you can have well, we're, running, we're actually running on the AWX box, so you can install a little Docker container, which basically just keeps polling back to Azure DevOps and saying, have you got any jobs for me? Have you got any jobs for me? And what I've done is that nicely in AWX, there's a nice API. So I've been using that and Postman to kind of work out what queries I need to run. And then we were running PowerShell scripts in Linux to run queries against the API um, so we can run the job. And 
we're then also querying the API so we can put real-time information back into the pipeline. So when you look at the pipeline for Azure DevOps, you can actually see the job, what's actually happening in AWX. So, you act, so the end user hasn't actually got to know about AWX. It's kind of automating from end to end. So that's kind of in what I've been doing for the last six weeks. It's probably worth just, just calling back a little bit there. We mentioned about Azure DevOps, which is CI/CD system that is based on what was Microsoft Team Foundation service, and so it does continuous integration and will execute scripts and stuff on you know when you've done commits and things like that. Terraform, which is a service that will automate building cloud environments or even non-cloud stuff, so you know ESXi or stuff like that but you're using it to automate Azure. AWX is the open source upstream version of Ansible Tower, uh, which is part of the Ansible automation platform. Is there anything else in there that I missed? Did I miss anything, guys? I mean, uh, just, to, uh, just to explain a bit further, Azure DevOps is a is a service that um, runs on Azure, basically. So it's, it's basically CI/CD as a service. Continuous integration, continuous delivery as a service. It also has things like tickets and and uh, some of the agile tooling that you need to do a DevOps project, if I remember rightly. And it's got Git repo and it's got repos in there as well. You can you can use it kind of instead of GitHub, can't you? I'm guessing it's GitHub in the back end. I would say no, it's not. Microsoft Team Foundation service used to be their own version control system that was nothing at all to do with Git, Subversion, anything like that. It was its own version control system. The move to using Git happened before they bought GitHub. So it's a separate, it's their own Git service internally. I have been listening to, I think it's devops.fm. And one of the guys there that was a Microsoft employee working with and supporting people that were using Azure DevOps has now moved to GitHub, but it's not because Azure DevOps is moving to using GitHub. It's because there's more, and I hate this term, but there's more synergies between the products. But yeah, it's not, it's not the same product underneath the surface. You'll probably find that it will start to pick up a lot more of the GitHub features, but it's not GitHub at the moment. That Azure DevOps.fm is quite, yeah, they don't really talk. I quite like listening to that because it's interesting to see what other people, but like it takes about 15, 20 minutes, but they talk about their private life before they kind of get into their, um, into talking about what they should be talking about. And then spend like five minutes talking about other stuff. And then they go back about what they've been watching on TV and stuff. And this, dear listener, is why we are so grateful to producer Dave <laughs> all of his services, which is why you don't hear any of these things. Oh, sorry. Close the curtains back. <laughs> no, that all sounds really, really quite interesting, Al. Yeah, it really is. I'm, I was a bit worried about, I don't really know anything about the whole kind of pipeline thing because it's just because I hadn't had to play with it. And then, yeah, it's, I understand it a lot more now. I mean, apart from that, I've been kind of, building a, a staging environment uh, we kind of had like a we've got kind of three environments like our dev pre-prod which is like where we do our testing and stuff before it goes to live but the problem is that it's, it's kind of it was like it was kind of like fudge so it wasn't really anything like our pre i wasn't like anything like our dev or staging so it's dev or production so i've been writing loads of kind of powershell scripts to build domain controllers and group policies and OUs and stuff so that in the future if we need to build anything again we can just easily do it from PowerShell scripts. One one thing that um, interested me when he was talking about the AWX side, you said about using PowerShell on um, Linux to call the AWX API. Yeah. How are you finding PowerShell on Linux? I've only dabbled with it a little bit so you know, I've not got much experience with that. Yeah, it just seems to work. You just write your PowerShell scripts and you can test it from your machine and then we upload it into the or into the we get commit it and then it seems to download it fine and runs fine from it. Intriguing. 
Yeah, I, I struggled slightly with getting stuff like PS Remoting and that working, but I think that was a known issue when they came out of it, and I don't think I've played much of it since. Yeah, so we'll literally all, all, all we're doing from it is just literally just running calls for APIs kind of thing. Right. So, so it's quite easy. Oh, intriguing. There was an interview, I think, on Binary Times um, and maybe another podcast. There's, there's a guy, I think his handle is Dementor, who's got a site. I think it's PowerShell on Linux.com. Although mm. um, we'll put the actual URL in the show notes, but there's a he's done a couple of interviews and it's really interesting because he he uses PowerShell on Linux uh, for pretty much everything, um, and it's really it's really kind of amazing what you can do with it. Yeah, I've, I vaguely remember something on the Jupiter Broadcast and um, feed with one of them a while ago, but yeah, I couldn't tell you which one it was right now. So yeah, show notes definitely. One of the other uh, shows in, the, in in our network here at Mega Corner. I don't know if any guys listen to that yet. There's a they've got a Telegram group. There's someone on there called PowerShell and Linux DM. So I'm wondering if that's the same guy. I think it is. Yeah. Maybe we have to get him on the show. So from the looks of things, PowerShell on Linux dot com uh, is uh, it, it might be the website we're talking about. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 check on that one. From what I recall from having listened to that podcast. Um, I think the whole website is actually created using PowerShell running on Linux. Mm. So he's running the he's running a web server in PowerShell, I think. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, definitely proven it works. Then at that point, yeah. So from my side, uh, what have we going on? Uh, so I am currently writing a whole slew of Terraform modules to automate standing up various security appliances. Uh, so typically third-party vendor-supplied firewalls and sort of your getting to grips with how the various different vendors recommend doing high availability in AWS and Azure. And from the looks of things, all of the AWS environments are using transit gateways with a security hub and then a spoke model. So your security hub is the one that's got uh, the internet gateway uh, and all your traffic goes through, is routed through your firewall to your internet gateway. So that does all your south to north, north to south and east to west firewalling. So I'm sort of playing with that at the moment. And the upshot of that is that I'm, I'm doing a lot more modules and I'm starting to, I'm, I'm writing them in for an internal market only at the moment. Uh, but my intention is, is to sort of go back to my management and say, can I release these, these modules of kind of blobs of common functionality, like the security hub and, you know, your, your other spokes and your, your, your virtual machines as open source modules to refer people back to. So if that happens sometimes, sometime, before the next show, I will talk about that in the next show. But that's that's really quite interesting, kind of sort of changing your mentality around do you pass the variable for, say, for example, your transit gateway uh, into your module, or do you pass, do you have the transit gateway stuff called from a variable in one of your other modules and all those sort of anything? Anyway. I've I've been doing also doing a lot with modules, uh, Terraform modules. This is uh, yeah. So I mean, just to go into that a little bit, is they're they're bits of Terraform code, and you can pass variables into them uh, to to do the the Terraform bits and bobs, and also you can output stuff from them, um, which you can you you can pass on to other. I mean, you you can output in JSON so that those those things can be passed into another. Terraform module or even another application completely. So, mm. uh, and I, I, I think when I do anything now, I, I do a module uh, just so that in case in, in that functionality needs to be reused in the future. So yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm quite on the same page with you there. <laughs> and and also I've been yeah writing. Uh, I'll probably talk about this in a future episode, but I've been writing Jenkins jobs. Um, which accept parameters, sort of user specified parameters, and then those can be fed into these modules as kind of parameters. Like, for instance, how many 
VMs do you want to start as a parameter or, or what is the name of naming scheme that you use for these, these uh, resources and, and so on. That's all in Groovy and uh, the, the Groovy programming language, which is a, a kind of new thing that I've been learning, but I'll go into that into in a future episode, I think. We, we've been making quite heavy use of um, Terraform modules for a while now, but we've, we started off things like um, modules that were build entire kind of, I don't know, almost like building the service itself, whereas now we've moved to a bit more of a, almost like a two-level approach of almost like Lego blocks. So you've got um, something that builds an EC2 in a certain way, so a virtual machine in AWS, or something that builds a security group in a certain way with the tags that we expect, the naming conventions we expect. And then above that, you can always have another, um, almost like a module itself, but we, we call them templates, but it's just our own internal term. And that brings in the modules to say, you know, this is how we build a service which has a virtual machine it has a security group it has access policies that kind of thing and then you can call that from something else which supplies the variables so it means that you can have um, virtual machines built exactly the same way every time but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to keep on copy and pasting how you build them um, ec2s every Mm. single time so it's almost like modules of modules um, to call them at that point and it, it, it's not useful for everything, but there's been a few times where we've gone, there's a, there's these kind of services. We, we always build them like this. So actually having a template that pulls from the underlying modules is good. But at the same time, as I say, we don't want to end up with, you know, drift between this is the way we build EC2s for this service and this is where they build EC2s for this service. Realistically, they should always be the same. So, yeah, we, we've kind of got um, a, a two-level two approach to um, our modules sometimes. So yeah, it's um that yeah, so, some of the things you can do with Terraform. I know in the latest version now as well, you can actually do um counts on modules, so it means that you can say how many times you want to uh, yes. run that module which wasn't available in the mo- um it's version 012 of Terraform, it wasn't available. It is now available and you can start, you know, placing conditionals and saying how many times you want this to run rather than having to put whether you want it to run supplying random variables. It's, you know, Terraform with every version does seem to be adding the features that uh, yeah are making it far more useful every time. There's there's, so there's two things that I use quite a lot of like that. So you've got count, and typically that tends to be I tend to use that for. Annoyingly, I use it for effectively doing. If this value is set, then I want you to create one of these, and if it's not set, I don't want you to create any of them. So that will tend to be you know if you if I've passed in my SSH public key string, then I want you to create an SSH public key. But if I haven't passed in an SSH public key string, then don't create me an SSH public key. But the other one uh, which you you didn't mention is for each. Yes. So I've been using that to create with my uh, VM module to create demo VMs. So I pass into with my for each module an array, well, they call it a map, sorry, a map of the host name that I want it to be called and the subnet it's going to be attached to. And so you can do that for each with that uh, and it will create as many subnets as you pass into that mask. But yeah, like you said, that only came in in 0.13. It's it's quite annoying because I'm kind of going back a year and I I was on 0.11 and you pull some code in from that and all the linting and validating warnings all kick off and go, you shouldn't be quoting your variables yeah, like yeah. that. Or um, the other fun thing with um, with modules is if you use the provider string in so so Terraform as a specification like, has a specification language called HashiCorp configuration language or HCL, which is kind of like you know um, uh, resource and then the type of resource that it is uh, and the name of that resource and then an open curled bracket and then a blob of stuff, and then it close curled bracket. And one of those blocks that you can provide to it is called provider. And in the provider, you can say, oh, I want you to use these this feature set, this, this collection of uh, things that goes with it. And so, for example, you can say required providers. Uh, AWS uh, must be at version whatever, or, you know, Azure must be at whatever. Uh, and you can stick those provider files into each of your modules. Uh, the thing that I found is that I, because I pulled in like half a dozen, dozen different modules, 
And they all said, you know, had different versions of AWS. And then it goes, well, I don't know which version you want me to use. You know, I've got, I've got six different versions here. Which one do you want me to use? So that's fun. The other thing I've been doing with, um, with Terraform is actually I've started using the, um, the null provider for a lot of things. Well, not a lot of things, a few things, particularly passing around variables because you can do a lot more dynamic, uh, creation of variable types with that. So there is a, in fact, I wrote a blog post about it this weekend. If you are building a lot of different virtual machines from AWS, for example, um, on AWS, you get given a virtual machine that has a predefined username. So the CentOS builds will all have the username CentOS uh, and the Amazon Linux VMs will all have the username EC2-user and the Ubuntu VMs will all have the username Ubuntu. Uh, Ubuntu. And so I want to have a way of uh, identifying uh, given a VM type of Ubuntu, uh, it will have the username of Ubuntu as well as the AMI, the AMI, the Amazon machine identifier, AMI. Uh, image. Image. Close enough. So I can, I can, I can use a variable in this, this thing that says load all these, uh, AMI values. Here's a variable that contains the usernames for those, all those different machine types. Uh, and then it can just say, ah, that machine you've got, you created the username for that will be EC2 user. And the AMI is this one for this region you're in. So that's, that was what the blog post, blog post was that I wrote this week. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm finding, finding myself getting, getting a lot more confident and comfortable with Terraform than, you know, I was even, you know, three or four months ago. So that's quite cool. I'm the same, actually. I, I, when I started the contract last year, I was kind of uh, flailing around a bit, but, uh, now I, I can, to sort of pick it up and and write some code and look at a little bit of the documentation for for a particular resource and uh, yeah it's pretty it's pretty much second nature if you like yeah yeah I, I I do really enjoy Terraform I think the biggest problem you get with Terraform is thinking one way is the right way of doing it and then you look back on it a few months later and going actually doing everything in one directory wasn't the right way let's split it out and then you find out the way you split it out wasn't quite right and you end up refactoring how you're doing it at least at least four or five times before you're happy with it mm-hmm. and then you go and watch a talk somewhere someone's got about terraform and just go oh that's the way we should have been doing it and then yeah i think i think we're at least on our third or fourth refactor of how we're doing things and i don't think it's the last where we are right now so yeah it's it just seems to check uh, you know you find one limitation and go oh we could do this better if we did it this way and yeah it's 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 constant learning to say the least Hmm. but learning's all good oh yes yes good learning i do find myself looking at other people's terraform code and think i I wouldn't do like that (laughs) also i wouldn't want to refactor it all so (laughs) if it works just let's just leave it like that (laughs) yes so calling back to something that was mentioned earlier we were talking about continuous integration uh, pipelines. And one of the things that I tend to find out about continuous integration stuff is that a lot of places will tend to use a continuous integration pipeline, a bit like what you might see as being a post commit hook uh, on uh, a git commit. So with git commits, uh, you can do things that happen before your commit happens or after your commit happens. And there's a load of other hooks that you can add in as well. I have to find the list of kind of where all those hooks are. Um, but the two main ones that you tend to find are pre-commit and post-commit hooks. Uh, so a pre-commit hook um, is things like, you know, has my has my system uh, passed all, all the sort of localized unit testing that I can do? Or has my local system uh, got any secrets that we don't want to part, don't want to commit into our version control system. Uh, and the post commit hooks can be things like once this commit has been committed, run these actions like, you know, push to, you can, you can have a post commit hook to push stuff straight to your version control system, or you can have a post commit hook to send a message to say, you know, to your continuous integration system saying, you know, please run these tests for me. Now, I did notice that Jerry has added something to our backlog of stuff about 
pre-commit hooks. And I just wondered what that was that you were trying to do with that. Well, uh, so for at, at this uh, new job that I'm working at, there there is a dot pre-commit directory in the code base, uh, and it turns out that this is a is a well l- looking on our website actually, which I've just brought up is a is a framework for managing and maintaining multi-language pre-commit hooks. So basically, in that dot pre-commit directory in your code base you can put a load of files uh, and in those files you it, there's a i think they the yaml yeah yeah looks like they're yaml files uh and they, there's a there's a structure to them and you can specify things in there like like linter linters for uh, so so a linter is uh, something that checks your code so for instance um trim trailing white space from from lines so if you if you make sure there's no white space at the end of a line make sure the indentation's right in the yaml file and make sure the yaml file actually passes properly things like that but you can do this for so one of the things that are the that this pre-commit um thing does in our code is to to check uh, or, or to run terraform format so what all that does is it, it sort of lines everything up nicely in your Terraform files, so it looks a bit t- it's, it's a bit tidier to look at, a bit easier to read, and yeah, check check YAML files. Um, it also does shell check, uh, which is a uh, an application for linting bash scripts. So it's it's just a way of specifying this all in one place. So so doing all of this pre commit stuff uh, in one place. Um, it's a Python thing, so you just install it um, via pip, and yeah, just it, it just runs uh, as you're saying, John. When you when you do a git commit, it'll do it on your local machine before pushing it to to GitHub in our case, just to make sure that your your code is all is all not that the code itself works, but that, that it's it's uh, tidy, I suppose, and readable. Uh, and it makes sense for the the particular language or sort of format that your your files are are being committed as. So this um, this Python library you've you talked about, what's that library called? Uh, just pre commit pre pre dash commit. The the website oh, right. is pre dash commit dot com. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a framework for for doing 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 the stuff that you you just mentioned. Or, or um, specifying it all in the YAML file. Is that a bit like within Azure DevOps, you can do test plans? So when you commit code, it just checks all your code for you? Yeah, yeah, you can do... Uh, GitHub also has a similar thing with GitHub Actions, um, but to kind of save your GitHub Action failing or your commit failing, you you do it on your local machine first in, a, in an automated fashion um, before you, you actually push the stuff. Yeah, we, we've not used anything like that yet, but there's a couple of things that people have got pre-commit scripts in for, but we're just in the process. Well, I say just in the process. Um, some of our applications are now using um, GitLab's um, CI stuff, and yeah, we're, we're doing all the testing and linting and things like that in GitLab. Mm. So it does mean that, you know, we actually see whether things are failing and, you know, they might might actually be good for other people to be able to see it because, you know, someone might look at it and go, well, I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, actually, it probably might be worth it us doing something like that as well just to, yeah, stop some of the errors getting into the code base in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I've, I it might, it's probably apparent from my, uh, my sort of talking about it that uh, I don't know too much about it. I, I just know it's there. Uh, and I know that sometimes my commits don't don't get pushed because uh, I have to fix something. <laughs> so there's a couple of places where I've seen this used um, uh, in quotes in anger. Um, the main one is uh, you can run um, systems like, I think it's called truffle hog and other sort of seek pre pre commit secrets checking so that you are never in the situation where you've committed something like an AWS API key. Mm or you've never committed, you know, your SSH private key or something like that. So you can you can write pre-commit checks like that. The other one that I've seen is where you have something like you've got a, a lightweight set of lints that if you've got them on your local machine, uh, 
before you push it to your CICD system, so before you push it to your source control system, um, then it means that you're not using your CICD free allocation of minutes. So for example, GitLab CICD has, say for example, 3000 minutes uh, a month that you get for free. I might be wrong on that number, but you know, just if that's the, if that's the number I'm thinking, let's say you get 3000 minutes. If you've got 500 committers, they might burn through that 3000 minutes in the first five or six days of the month. And so then you're paying for those pre-commits or those, those commit checks. If you can run that locally on your machine before you push, then you're never going to, you, you are less likely to get to the point where you, you're using those, those minutes up. Mm. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, pre-commit will also install all those linters for you on your, your local machine by looks of it. So you do something like pre-commit, uh, and then the, whatever keyword it is, and it will install, you know, your Ansible lint or your, your, your Python lint or whatever. So it's, it's less work, you know, it's less work to get all the stuff, all that, stuff installed in the first place to, to do those checks. That sounds interesting. There's a couple of fun things you can do with, with um, Git hooks as well. So I've just found the page from the uh, Git SCM book. Uh, so you've got pre-commit hooks, but there's also prepare commit message hooks, uh, which run before the commit message editor is fired up, but after the default message is created. So what you could do is add, um, you know, a standard set of values to the end of that commit message before the editor opens up. So you've got to go in and make the changes that it says, you know, before it goes in there. There's also the commit message hook, which is the path to the temporary file that contains the commit message. Uh, you've also got a post commit hook. There are also email workflow hooks. Uh, so again, for those that don't know, Git was born from, uh, some concepts that Linus Torvalds had and Linus Torvalds obviously manages all of the, um, the Linux kernel development. And that is all done by passing around emails with the, the things that people want to change. So you might email a particular subsystem mailing list and say, I want to make this change to, to the Linux kernel. And here's my patch set. So there's none of this merge request, pull request stuff. It's all done through emails. So, the Git hooks also have hooks for the email work, email workflow. So you've got apply patch message, pre apply patch and post apply patch. And then there's also some other hooks for things like rebasing. If you do git commit minus minus amend or um, git rebase, there's a post rewrite hook. So you can rewrite your commit messages and things like that. There's a post checkout hook, a uh, post merge hook. Uh, a pre-push hook and also uh, some pre-receive and update hooks and things like that. So there's loads and loads and loads of things that you can do with Git hooks. So, uh, so that's all fun if that's your idea of fun, I suppose. I suppose one interesting thing about the email workflow is um, there's a site called Source Hook, which is essentially trying to be almost like a more open source, a more open version of um, your standard Git, uh, GitHub, GitLab, and um, other source control systems. But one of the main things that they were trying to work towards was um, an email-based workflow, because I, I think they've either done some um, development with the kernel before, or just worked you know, on the mailing list approach to building things. And yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting approach, to say the least. And yeah, I've, I've never worked in that way at all. So yeah, just, just looking at doing it that way would be very alien to me. But yeah, it's... There are systems, as I say, that seem to almost work that way primarily rather than, you know, doing it through the UI or doing it through the CLI kind of thing. Mm, no, that is interesting. So another thing, um, obviously, we've talked before about um, how I'm doing some stuff with um, third-party firewalls in AWS and Azure. Uh, but one of the things that's in the, uh, the list of things for, for us to talk about tonight um, is about Azure firewalls, uh, which I think is something that you know about. Yep, yeah, I've been kind of... Playing with Azure files, we're basically moving from our, an on-premise into Azure, and we need a firewall really to basically so we can stop traffic going from one environment to the other. Um, and we were looking at 
all the solutions, which is yet well, as in Microsoft's core, is it's the MVA, which is the network virtual appliance. Um, which it, to get your head around routing in Azure is a bit odd because it's just, I don't know if you've used routing tables a lot in Azure, but here's really because normally you so you normally say on a route when you like on a normal in a normal infrastructure you say to get to this network you go via this gateway which is on your local which is on your local subnet, but in Azure it's, it doesn't work like that. You basically say you'd have as a thing, they have a concept, or they call it a hub and spoke network, where you have a hub network in the middle, which is a bit, which is basically a virtual network with little subnets off it, and then you have your different environments coming off those. It could be something like your some of them like a where you have your free tier application, so you have your web front end um, in your application there and your um, and your SQL layer, and um, you, yeah. You would you would normally think have you come across this um, this routing table thing, John? It's just really confusing if you haven't. It kind of puts networking out the window. So it's not put out the window. Um, oh blimey! But just, if you're coming from a normal infrastructure and you come along and it's this, where hang on a minute, why why are we pointing to a gateway which is not on on your local subnet? So there's 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 a fun way to think about this. If you have come from a traditional networking background, what you need to think about your network interfaces is not that they are part of a standard sort of layer two, layer three, layer seven style network. Instead, what you need to think about it as is that you've got point to point links. So effectively, although you've got your machine is addressed as a, you know, slash 24, slash um, 16 subnet CIDR masternet network. What you're actually working with is um, a slash 32 between you, effectively you're talking direct to the router that's on your network. Now, it's all transparent to you. You don't, you don't look at it like that. But when you, when you do, um, uh, an ARP request for uh, who has this address. What happens is that gateway on your on your network that the usually the dot one, the the first first node on that the first IP on that that CIDR. The only that's the only node on your network that your host will actually talk to, and if the host that you're trying to reach it doesn't know about, it can't route you to it. I mean, again, you treat it as a point to point. It's between you and that, that, that first IP address. But because that's all transparent to your user, to your, to the OS, uh, and to the network, it looks like you can route to anything in the VPC, the, the virtual private cloud or the VNet. You can route to anything in that VNet because actually it's all transparent. It, you know, it, like you said, it looks like you're routing between, you know, um, uh, 192.168.1.15 slash 24 and 192.168.100.15 slash 24. You know, it doesn't make sense how you can route between those two subnets. And actually, because when you're looking at the routing table, you're looking at the routing table of the router in your subnet, you're not looking at the routing table for the whole network. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and also as well, aren't you, with the whole of these, a lot, obviously with the cloud stuff, you've got so many NICs interfaces on that machine, aren't they? Now they're kind of all virtual, aren't they? So you it's not your it's not your normal kind of ARP requesting, is it? Because that's what the the whole because you could have two PCs or two virtual machines on the machine with the same IP address, and obviously that the the whole point of the cloud is that you can have that, isn't it? So I had a quite a long conversation with one of our third party firewall vendors, um, and he went into an awful lot of detail on how this lot works. But actually, what happens is. You're right. The, the reason why it's architected like this is so that you can have millions of same IP addressed subnets on the same host. 
and you think when you then you think about if you've got two VMs, haven't you, on separate hosts, and how they communicate between the two of them as well, isn't it? That's kind of like the yeah. whole. But no, going back to things. So when you can do it, obviously, with the whole thing is that you want to you want to basically monitor the traffic, but or stop or, or stop and filter traffic between the, the your your two VNets. Um, um, I was looking at because oh yeah, we this we can have our checkpoint things in our firewalls, or we can do our Sophos. But it all gets very complicated quite quickly because you have to have two of them because of the need to have high availability because they're just literally just running as VMs. And then you get other issues as well where you get things like where you have to sort out routing because obviously you are saying in your routing table, I want to forward to this IP address, which is your which is your new firewall. But obviously, if, you've, if you're running them in parallel, you need to then put them behind a load balancer and then I think you were saying, Jordan, that sometimes then you then got to work out state tables as well if it's if they're active active or active passive. Yeah. And it gets it gets all very confusing very quickly. Um, and you, again, you then stop by the performance as well of what the virtual machine is like, how much networking you can put for it. So uh, Microsoft provides a thing called Azure Firewall, which is managed by them, and you get a single IP address, and you can put lots of throughput for it um so they hold they do all the back end stuff you haven't got to worry about running two virtual machines all you have to do is going in and and putting in your firewall rules i mean they're not the best firewall rules set it's not nice and easy like an asa or checkpoint where you can up and down firewall rules easily but it will get there one day and we just made a decision that in the end it's just easier to use that product because if something fails then it's and again you can go back to microsoft and say hey it's not working whereas if you if it's like a third party file where you always get an issue of oh it's it's your networking or no it and then as you'll go no it's your firewall so yeah so the, the things that so it's effectively the, the way that i think about the azure firewall product is that effectively microsoft have abstracted away from the user the fact that they are building an active active cluster of however many virtual files it needs to carry the load that is going on your network. Um, and because it's Microsoft and because of the way they build their network, it can burst out from two nodes to 15 nodes or however many it needs to go out to. And you are from memory, not charged for that bursting you're instead charged for the gigabit throughput yeah so it works out in the uk about 650 650 pounds a month for running that as a service and then uh, then you pay per gigabyte how much it goes through Mm. you mentioned about how uh if you're running third-party firewalls you have problems with state but state tables and things like that yes that is absolutely the case the reason why that's a problem in Azure is that the way that you build your clustering has to be done as an active-active pair or an active-active cluster rather because because you can't do network-wide broadcasts, you can only do unicast traffic. So the tricks that the on-prem vendors used to use for clustering for active passive clustering, things like VSRP, NSRP, HSRP, um, all relied on two things. One was being able to talk to all the other clusters in the node simultaneously with the broadcast to see who was up, who was down, you know, who had available capacity. Um, and the other thing is that when the when there is an an HA event, so you know your active falls off the network or is rebooted or whatever, and the standby takes over, um, it sends an ARP broadcast. Well, you can't do broadcasts on AWS or Azure. So you have to have another system to do your your availability monitoring. But then, particularly in Azure, the API does not respond quick enough to be able to do things like routing changes. So one of the things that one of our vendors does is that they have a process that runs on the uh, firewall or on the firewall manager platform, depending on how you have it configured, that when you have an HA event, it will actually ask 
um, Azure's API to reroute the traffic from node A to node B. What the vendor found was that when they initiate that request, it can take anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes for that API request to enact, which 30 seconds is just on the outside edge of the TCP Keep Alive range. But at 30 seconds, you've pretty much lost any chance of kind of retrying to get that TCP session back up. AWS's API is a lot faster. Uh, you're still looking at somewhere around about five to seven seconds minimum, but that's easily within the TCP window. So one of the vendors we work with does have an active passive model that they recommend for AWS, but all of the vendors recommend now doing active active clusters in Azure. The downside to doing active active clusters is that to get your return traffic going through the right firewall on the return path, you need to do source natting. If you don't do source natting, what you need to turn off is state inspection uh, and basically say anything that already is established can carry on. Anything which is new must go through your through your processing table. So there's lots of fun things around that. And as you said, if you're using the Microsoft native firewall product, you sidestep all of that because they've just built it in. The downside, as you said, is that it's not the same as running a checkpoint or a Cisco or a Fortinet or whatever. Um, you know, it's not the same point and click interface. Um, although to be fair, what, what I'm starting to look at in my day job is that actually we need to start looking at doing file rules as code. So you have your CICD pipelines and stuff like that. You have your Git commit, your GitOps kind of workflows of, you know, the only way this firewall change is going to be made is if it's approved through your change management process, which means that somebody needs to sign off on that commit and it needs to get merged into master, at which point your Terraform stuff or your Ansible scripts or your whatever will then push that change to your firewall. And in fact, uh, all the vendors that I'm talking to on a regular basis have Ansible modules and Terraform modules. So you can do all your firewall policies with your third-party stuff through your infrastructure as code tooling. I would presume the uh, Azure files have not used them, but I'm presuming you can actually do the rules from Terraform and things like that already. Yeah? Yes. Right. They're basically just an enhanced version of the security groups that you would have in, you know, whatever cloud platform. And in fact, actually... Which platform is it? AWS now has what they call AWS Firewall Manager, uh, which was originally designed to drive the WAF, the Web Application Firewall um, product. So you have a consistent uh, WAF policy across all of your WAF appliances, your AWS WAF appliances. They've now extended that out to the AWS firewalls as well. Uh, so that you have a consistent firewall policy across all of your firewalls in, in your region, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. I saw something about the in prefix list as well, so you don't have to keep doing individual IPs. You can actually reference a prefix list, which has your list of I, um, IPs and allowed networks as well. So, yeah, they do seem to be putting a lot of effort into that at least. Again, as well with, like, Azure file, you've got a thing called IP groups, which you can do the kind of thing again, which is... Nice. It's not fully there yet, but it's still interesting to do. Interesting. One last little nugget to uh, to pick through here is that we got pulled up from our last episode about object-oriented programming, OOP, uh, and I kept saying object-orientated programming. We've had a little bit of a look into it, uh, and one is the US pronunciation and the other is the UK English pronunciation of it. Uh, so they both mean the same thing. But if it offends your sensibilities, I'm very sorry. <laughs> That's just too bad. <laughs> <laughs> they both mean the same thing. They're, they're both yeah. in, in use in, in various parts of the world. <laughs> yeah, but, but by the looks of it, when I was looking into it, um, we use oriented in the UK quite a bit, but we also use orientated, whereas... 
outside of um, the UK is very rarely used, um, the orientated version of the word. So it means that, yeah, if anyone's outside the UK and just goes, well, that just isn't right, that's that's why, because to us, it's a normal word. It's a word we use every day. Uh, well, maybe not every day, but it's a word we're used to using, whereas, you know, the rest of the world just going, what what are they talking about? So, yeah, that, that, will, that will be why. It's the aluminium, aluminium. Yes, exactly. Possibly um, OIP was invented in the USA, arguably. So maybe that's uh, the correct pronunciation. Anyway, yeah. I'll, I'll step away before I, I, I start a flame war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Vim, Vim and Emacs all over again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so with that, I think, I think we might be getting relatively close to the end of the show. Sounds good to me. So, Stu, over to you. So Dave does our audio production and yeah, he fixes any problems we've got and he does a wonderful job on it. Um, and also we are now proud members of the other side podcast network and you need to see the other side dot network for more details on that. I'd like to thank our Patreons, uh, who are Andamo, Andy, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu, not that one, Stuart, that one, uh, and Yannick, <laughs> uh, thanks guys. You are, you you do an amazing job uh, by uh, paying our our server bills. As always, if you've got any feedback on this show or any of our previous shows, uh, please feel free to email mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk, um, or you can join our Telegram group, uh, and you'll find the link to that in both our show notes and on the contact us page on our website. So, if you've got any questions you want us to answer, contact us by email. We're not Hello Crown Group. We do questions and we'll try and answer it on our next show. I think we actually had an email in tonight well, as we're recording, so uh, that'll be on our next show. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so again, thanks, uh, Dave, for doing the um, post-production and uh, we'll uh, catch you all um, next time. Speak to you all soon. Speak to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more about our shows at otherside.network. <laughs>